to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Dude. Hello, hello, hello. It is I, Dude. I've got Andy and Don with me to do a little Album Nerds Podcast. And today, gentlemen, start your engines. It's time for fun. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just want to start the show out by apologizing for uh, stealing your lighter. And I also wanted to admit that I did indeed lose the map. Apologies. Ah, I see what you're doing there, Andy. Don, how you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm all right. <laughs> I, I didn't get the reference. I'm sorry. <laughs> the reference is to what we're talking about today, oh. Don. So, uh, That's right. What we are. We are the Album Nerds Podcast. We love albums. We listen to albums. We talk about albums. Three guys that uh, have that in common. And we hope that you listening also have that in common. So at the end of every show, so that we can determine what albums we're going to talk about, we like to leave it up to fate. We like to try and learn about new things, maybe get outside of our comfort zone. And we spun the Wheel of Musical Destiny, which we'll do later as well. And it... Landed on Lilith Fair. So that would be any artist that performed at one of the Lilith Fair um, events. Yeah, so Lilith Fair was a, a traveling music festival founded by Canadian musician Sarah McLaughlin. Uh, also, network music groups Dan Frazier and Terry McBride and New York talent agent Marty Diamond uh, took place during the summers of uh, 97 through 99. Uh, and it, there was a revival in the summer of, of 2010. Uh, and it consisted solely of, of female uh, artists, right? So solo artists and female-led bands. Uh, so this was a time... Uh, and I, just reading about it, um, you know, Sarah McLaughlin was kind of reacting, um, to the fact that, you know, concert promoters were hesitant to ever have, um, like two female acts back to back, uh, on a bill, uh, which, uh, which of course is absurd. So, um, you know, she started this music festival where it would be, uh, all women. Um, so we're gonna, uh, each, uh, present an album from uh, an artist that that performed at uh, at least one of the uh, one of uh, on one of the Lilith Fair tours. That's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about our expectations and experience with Lilith Fair? Never went to any of these concerts, unfortunately, but I didn't hear a lot about it. It must have come somewhere nearby because I, I know the radio stations around here were promoting it quite a bit in the late '90s. Yeah. Put you guys in the crowd. Right? <laughs> I I was not in the in the crowd. Yeah, it, it wasn't really something that that interested me. I did go to a Jewel concert once, and you know, uh, which is uh, oh, get him his Lilith Fair uh, credentials. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, uh, I I skipped the the Lilith Fair. I had friends that went, so ah, that yeah. counts, right? right. <laughs> yeah, I was aware of it. I thought it was a cool idea, but I thought it would be, at the time, I was like, wow, boring, you know, I'm sure that's great for the ladies, but why would I want to yeah. listen to that? And and uh, that's the stupidness of, of youth. I thought I didn't relate to it, mm-hmm. but I never listened to it to know right. <laughs> to a lot of these artists. Yeah. So that was my, my misguided rationale. So uh, jumping into this, hoping that... Uh, Maybe some layers can be peeled back and 
can let go of some of the stupid ideas that me and lots of other dudes probably had back when when uh, Lilith Fair was at its peak. So let me uh, dig into some of the records from some prominent Lilith Fair artists. You choo choo choose me. All right, all right, all right. For my Lilith Fair selection, going with Americana artist Lucinda Williams and her 1998 album Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Let me play the title track. Uh, a little bit of Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Somebody somewhere don't know. Come on, not child. We're gonna go for a ride, Car Wheels. So that's. Car Wheels on Gravel Road. Uh, this is Lucinda's fifth studio album. She comes from the Lake Charles, Louisiana area, uh, which is important to this record in particular because it largely focuses on kind of rural life in that area of the U.S. of A. And that was actually the three words I used to describe this album were rural southern life because I think it really paints a picture of, of that lifestyle and uh, some of the uh, people that live there. The build-up to this record was pretty significant. It was six years between this and her previous release. Um, she spent three years solid just recording this album, and I would say it sounds like it. It's a very polished, modern-sounding um, folk Americana country record, which normally it doesn't sound appealing to me, but I think the, the strength of the songwriting here is so good and so pristinely presented that you can really appreciate her lyrics and the the craftsmanship, her songwriting that goes into these tracks. So I, I love this record. I've always enjoyed her sound. I think this is one of the the clearest declarations of it. What do you What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate uh, her her songwriting. You know, sometimes with these you know rootsy based like rock or or blues based albums, uh, sometimes I get a, a little bored. Um, you know, like forty minutes in, you know, it all starts to kind of blend together. And that didn't happen with this album, maybe just because there were, you know, a few songs mixed in there that were just really hooky and, and catchy. Uh, and there's enough variety in there. There's a couple of tempo changes, you know, that it, it, it kept my interest throughout. So yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's an impressive record. And as you said, you know, polished and, and well produced. Every day is a winding road is what this yeah. <laughs> reminded me of. Yeah. You know, I I looked into it and I knew Lucinda Williams had been around a long time. Her first album was 1979, so she's of of the Lilith Fair artist. She's she was more previously established. It wasn't. I don't know if it's a comeback because she never had a real breakthrough. She was just kind of more underground folk type stuff. Feels like it was all very uh, mindfully crafted to fit into this world, especially with the number of years of production and. A bunch of pro different producers, Steve Earle included, being involved. I don't know. I listened to the 1979 album, which I much preferred, just personally. It just, just felt too much like all the other stuff, more of a reaction to the things that were going on rather than than uh, paving any kind of roads, hmm. obviously, because they're all gravel. <laughs> well, well done. Well, I mean, her voice, the tone of her voice is so similar to, to Cheryl Crow's. Cheryl Crow's, yeah, um, totally. I mean, Cheryl Crow has a, you know, Probably a better singing voice. Uh, oh no! <laughs> punches and bunches. I, mean, Andy. I thought. I mean, that's <laughs> I, and that, that's no shot. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I would rather listen to this than a Cheryl Crow record. Right. Yeah, I get yeah. you. Me too. Yeah. One thing about Lucinda Williams, uh, she really does play up the twang when when she sings. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know if her speaking voice, if her accent is, is actually that thick or if she's exaggerating it. As often country artists do exaggerate the twang. You know, even the Rolling Stones, you know, the Mick Jagger was waiting on a friend. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about her twang level uh, and her speaking voice, but I mean, she is from the Deep South, so... Give her some some points for that at least. Yeah, you know the production thing is easy to get caught up in, and it was a big struggle to get this record released. There was a lot of build up for it, and then I think her expectations were so high for herself that she really struggled to get it out. And oftentimes that will ruin a record. But I think the songwriting here is so strong. Like I said, it doesn't really seem like it was unstoppable in this case. So the, the concept of the record itself largely focuses on. Specific areas of the South, little small towns and kind of descriptions of some people that live there, mostly, you know, heartbreak stories and, you know, talks about the scenery and like growing up around there. One of the songs I thought really captured that nicely is a song about her hometown. Uh, this is track from the middle of the record, uh, Lake Charles. Langy songs on the record, I would say. Definitely has country elements to this, to this album, but I think it's so much polish, there's not a lot of room for twang left over. A little bluesiness there, too. Kind of a Bonnie Raitt vibe Definitely. on that song. But yeah, to your point earlier, the lyrical content, the stories of small towns, you know how I like that stuff a lot. And that, that was the thing that anchored me to this album, even though I did have some hang-ups about it as I was listening, sometimes being too reminded of too many other things. But that's not a crime. But the lyrics and the stories are awesome. It fits in with a, a lot of other stuff at the time. I mean, I this was kind of that time period where I think like the alt-country stuff was happening with like the Jayhawks and Sunvolt. And, Rico, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, just, I just kind of have always gravitated toward the folky storytelling stuff. But Andy... In terms of like Lucinda and the Lilith Fair, which which one did she play at? She was at the second one in 1998. Strangely, she was on the second stage, which kind of blows my mind how they organize those artists. But I bet a lot of people learned about her because of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, she really blew up. This was her best-selling record. And I think she won some awards for it, I believe. Um, some of the songs on her, at least. Yeah, one thing that I found interesting about it. We mentioned there's a lot of different producers involved. Uh, Steve Earle, notable uh, artist in the space as well, was one of those producers. Um, and he brought kind of like a, what I would call like a 90s hip hop, like boom bap beep to a few of these tracks, which really stand out, I think, uh, as you're playing through. Much, most of the songs are pretty minimal production wise, um, or minimal in terms of instrumentation. Um, but there's a couple tracks. Um, the third track, Too Cool to Be Forgotten. And then this track that comes later in the record, which really brings a lot of energy to kind of close things out, uh, is entitled Joy. Yeah, it's so swampy and muddy, but it does have a... I hadn't thought about the hip-hop beat stuff, but you're totally right. I like I like that that's a part of it. I just got the kind of... That sort of swampy vibe from yeah. it. Yeah, no, me too. I didn't think about the hip hop thing either, but I found a quote from Steve saying that was his inspiration for those two tracks in particular. Yeah, you know, it's cool. It's weird. You see these artists like struggling for decades, kind of doing the underground circuit, and then they decide to just, all right, I'm going to cross over. This is going to be a big, my big break here. And she made it work for herself. So I think uh, that's cool because she definitely earned it, um, kind of doing all that 
that work. And she was a very, very well-known songwriter before this breakthrough here. She had written Passionate Kisses. Do you guys know that song? Yeah, I remember Oh, that. Yeah. yeah. Mary Chapin Carpenter, right? Yeah, exactly. She popularized that a few years before this came out. She also wrote some stuff for Emmylou Harris and Tom Petty just before this album came out. So she's kind of known by musicians, but I think this album helped get her out to the public a little bit more. And glad well, I did, because I think she's an amazing talent. If you haven't heard Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, I think it's a great place to jump into her career because it's probably the, one of the more accessible of her records. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. And now it is time on the show when we ask ourselves a question. Now, let me mansplain this to you guys. Oh, boy. Here we go. we're gonna answer a question do you listen to many female artists uh yes of course um yeah i don't know i've never really segmented them in my mind or listening preferences i would guess just like scrolling through my spotify it's probably 50 50 but at times i might listen to more female stuff than i do male stuff just because i feel like it's so prevalent nowadays I feel like there's a lot of like experimental female-led music that's out there nowadays that maybe wasn't a couple decades ago so i do gravitate towards that kind of style and yeah so i've i don't know i've never really thought about it like that before wow that's so enlightened yes. i'm not trying to be a jerk i'm just that's that's my honest opinion is that why you were uh apologizing for all the wrongs to uh <laughs> ladies in your life at the beginning of the show come on <laughs> <laughs> okay well i'll confess that I mean, throughout my life, um, you know, I, I think my music collection has always included far more men than, than women. I mean, I think it's somewhat natural that you, you tend to gravitate to, you know, people with, with common experiences. I mean, there are a few artists that are, are favorites of mine. I think I've gotten better about it, you know, so just because something doesn't um, appeal to me right away, uh, I, you know, I give it a chance. So I, I'm definitely trying to, to, to listen to, to more female artists because I, de- you know, I generally enjoy them and I, I, I enjoy the, you know, the getting that, that female perspective. Um, you know, that I, that I lack. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, pretty similar to me as well. I, I do listen to some female artists. I probably ignore more than I should. Uh, I, I tended to, to gravitate towards, uh, female artists that were more in the pop space, R&B space, Janet Jackson and, uh, Whitney Houston, Madonna, you know, 80s kid. So that, that was kind of the, the, the place I put that, uh, for rock and roll. I mean, there's been a few exceptions, Janis Joplin, Hart, the pretenders, but by and large, I've, I've just been resistant and it's kind of stupid. I think the reasoning was always, I can't relate to it, but you know, I think sometimes the point is to listen to things you can't relate to so you can better understand, um, someone else's perspective, which, doesn't make you relate to it, but it, it is still a, a useful exercise and, and you can find value in it. All right. Why don't you guys out there answer the question? Let us know how you feel about other perspectives. How open to it are you? Tell us your stories and suggest some albums for us and we'll try and do the same. Hit us up on Discord or the socials. Of good over evil. Wow. Like a real enemy. Wow. <laughs> okay, so um, 
this actually is an artist that has lived in my music collection uh, since I was quite young. Sinead O'Connor, born Sinead Marie Bernadette O'Connor in uh, December 1966 uh, in Ireland. So this is her, her second album released in uh, March of 1990. Uh, I do not want what I haven't got. Uh, let's let's start with a, a clip from Three Babies. Yeah, in that uh, in that song, she states that she's like a wild horse, uh, and so those are those are my three words, right? Uh, like a, a wild <laughs> horse, because I think this album is like that, and I I think she really is. You know, it's kind of all over the place. You know, her voice is kind of wild and uncontrolled. It can be soft uh, and beautiful. It can be loud and challenging. Uh, it's very emotive. But anyway, what uh, what do you guys think of uh, Sinead O'Connor uh, in this album? Uh, yeah, powerful, challenging. I think are definitely good words to describe it. It's like such an intimate, like painfully personal record to listen to. I'll let you get into some of the background on it, but it's I, not an easy listen in my opinion. Not because it's not good, but just because of the subject matter it gets into. And I think how like just raw it feels to listen to it. It's so genre ambiguous that I remember at the time not knowing what this was like is it new age music it sounds like enya at times yep. you know um, at times but sometimes not at all right um yeah so i mean the, this this album is the you know as you guys suggested is is all over the place so some of the songs are like the one that uh, that we just played three babies it's you know kind of dramatic it's got this big orchestral background and you've got some songs that are more like straight up folk like black boys on mopeds and the last day of our acquaintance are, are kind of folky you've got a couple of, of rockers or uh, you know upbeat tracks um and then uh here's an interesting one um why don't we do a a, a clip of uh, i am stretched on your grave I feel like maybe a, a young Alanis Morissette heard that, and because that really that uh, that reminds me of of what came later. Yeah, that you vocal know. style. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep. Uh, so that song, the the I am stretched on your grave, is a it's actually a 17th century, I guess, Gaelic poem, and it's you know that kind of hip hop beat that you're, you're hearing there. That's actually a sample of James Brown's uh, "Funky Drummer," uh, which I think is one of the most like yeah. sampled drum beats of, uh, all of, of all time. But, it, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I always thought that was, uh, uh, an interesting track. Um, and that's what I, I guess I really like about this album is it's just really interesting. You know, nothing compares to you is, is, is what drew everybody to the album. It's why it sold a billion records or whatever it did. And, you know, so nothing compares to you was written by Prince and it was recorded by his group there, the family. I think they they were called. I think she nails that song. You know, when I listen to the album, you know, in some ways, I think it feels kind of out of place. Yeah, well, you had to bring it up because it is, uh, I was going to ask about it. That is, to most people, that is this album. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge in terms of popularity. But, you know, I think you're right, Don. It really sticks out like a sore thumb on the record. I don't know. I mean, it's a good performance, but. Yeah, and I mean, if you lived through that, like, spring and summer of 1990, I mean, you heard that song so much, um, you know, that you maybe didn't, by the time I was getting into this album, you know, I, I did not really, you know, need to, need to hear that, that song. 
But, you know, I suppose it also contributes to the eclectic nature of the album. But it is, you know, interesting that the song she's known for is probably like the the least Sinead O'Connor-like <laughs> song she has. So there is uh, another single from the from the album is the uh, the Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, it's one of the uh, more upbeat and and rocking tracks uh, on the album. Why don't we uh, hear a clip of that? Yeah, and the other uh, upbeat track is uh, "Jump in the River," which was which doesn't sound very upbeat. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, wait, wait, if it's the, if it's because you're partying, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that actually appeared before the the album came out. It was in the movie "Married to the Mob." It was on the the soundtrack uh, to that film. Yeah, so I mean, Sinead O'Connor's just a, an interesting character, a, a controversial character. Uh, I think in some ways that maybe detracts from listening to to her and, and giving her a, a chance, you know, because I, I really think there's a lot of talent here. And I, you know, I'm somewhat saddened because I, I don't think her career quite went where it could go. You know, the album that followed this one up, I think it was called Am I Not Your Girl? You know, that was all like covers. Then there was the Pope controversy and I don't know, just a lot of things I think kind of der- derailed her career. I mean, she had some solid albums um, since, but I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, at the top of the segment, that's what, what we played a clip from that Pope controversy, which was she was on Saturday Night Live and ripped up a picture of the Pope because she had some issues with the Catholic Church. Many people did. There's a lot of controversies there. We won't get into any of that, but she was totally blackballed over something no one would give a shit about now, nope. but... <laughs> Like, she was booed off stages. She was treated viciously by people over it. It was it was stupid. And that derailed her career. It also, I think, poisoned her, her mind and soul to the music business and to the entertainment and to the whole thing. And I'm sure every record since has been painted by that experience. Yep. Yeah, she's, uh, I would say she's not a soul at peace, you know, which... Which comes out in this album, um, maybe even comes out more in, in her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, which is also a, a solid album. Um, I, I had trouble choosing between these two albums. I know she had a tough upbringing and there was abuse and she lost her mother. Uh, and that's, I mean, you can hear it in in this album. It feels sincere. You know, I mean, this is, I, I don't think this is a contrived album. This is not, you know, somebody just trying to capitalize on, you know, angsty female, you know, whatever. This is, you know, a, a real person who's, you know, searching for, for peace. And, you know, I think, Lilith Fair was a, a good place for someone like Sinead to go perform at. These these artists could go and play freely and not be worried about fitting a particular mold or fitting into the male-dominated music business. Um, I'm sure that she did not hear any booze, and uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and this, uh, this album, I, I think, is just really well-produced. I mean, they do a great job of... of capturing her her voice and, and presenting it in a in a powerful way uh so it was produced i, I guess by Sinead o'connor and also nelly hooper uh who had also produced that that bjork record that we did several weeks ago and he had done like u2's um i think how to dismantle an atomic bomb uh, yeah you know i i think it's an excellent album you know if you're gonna check out Sinead o'connor i would recommend this one or her uh, debut record the lion and the cobra uh, but that's uh, I do not want what I haven't got. I Sinead O'Connor. And now a word from our sponsor, us. This is friendship, pure unadulterated friendship. Hiya. Hey, there, music fans, looking for a place to uh, 
talk about music, check out the Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord. It's a place for like-minded album freaks such as yourself to hang out, talk about what you've been listening to, if you're going to any good shows, it's a great place to post some information about that, or, uh, you know, just what you're excited about coming out later this summer. So once again, go to Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord. All right, all right, all right. All right, so I'm bringing to the table Liz Fair, who addresses guys like Wooderson from Days of Confused with her debut album, Exile in Guyville, from June of 1993, performed at Lilith Fair on the 1998 main stage. That's right, Andy, main stage over here, <laughs> not, not stage two. <laughs> So why don't we uh, start off with the opening track from the album called Six Foot One. And I kept standing six feet one. Instead of five All right, so that was Six Feet One from Exile in Guyville. Liz Fair. She's from Chicago. Right. <laughs> cool. Uh, so she was an independent artist in, in Chicago uh, looking for, with her songs and musings, looking for a record label, found Matador and was able to put this this album together from songs she had already written and then wrote some songs in the recording process. A lot of acclaim, lo-fi, indie rock. Um, my three words are escape from Guyville. The album themes are about being stuck in this man's world in a way male dominated music business in particular she had struggled with that so you guys tell me what are your thoughts on on this a little bit we'll get into some of the songs and and some of the details about uh the themes here the loose concept and all that but initial impressions yeah it's a great record definitely my favorite of hers and i think it's an interesting combination of like kind of that 90s alt rock sound but there's a lot of like interesting art rock combinations in here and some of the, the later tracks especially uh, which i think work really well and she's such a she comes across as being such a smart heady artist on this record uh, i really appreciated that there's a lot of i wouldn't say little jokes but a lot of like little smart twists to these songs that i found really appealing did you, what did you think, Don? I, I enjoy this a lot. Um, I mean, I've known Liz Fair since I, I remember when, when this album had come out and I remember, um, you know, hearing it on the radio and on MTV's, uh, 120 minutes. Um, but I never, you know, mm. spent time with her, you know, with, with her album. Yeah. I, you know, was, was quite happy with this. I mean, just lyrically, I, I like her a lot and I, I, I think it's that. I mean, everything just seems like tongue in cheek or, you know, there's just, there's a sense of humor. Also, you know, like the, the reverse misogyny, um, the, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, the, the crassness of it is, is kind of funny. You know, it, it's probably sounds silly, but her approach to lyrics reminds me of, of Morrissey a little bit, just with the, you know, there's some self deprecation in there. You're never quite sure if, you know, if she's being serious or not. God, it's so different from the from Sinead O'Connor. You know, I mean, there's no sense of humor on that album. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> I mean, the toughest part about her, I think, is the the way she sings. But I think that's very much in kind of like the where punk rock went. You know, as it got into the the 80s. You know, you have groups like the the Violent Femmes, uh, and the Pixies, and the Replacements, and it wasn't about you know, singing things uh, on key. You know, there's that very flat delivery that that she does. 
I, I assume a lot of that rhythm guitar is is her. It's uh, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it reminds me of. I mean, everything reminds me of the Cure, uh, but <laughs> but <laughs> the Cure is life. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, you know the the way she strums her guitar and that almost sounds like it, two of the strings might be kind of flat or something. It, it's just um, it's cool, you know. So I'm I uh, I like Liz Fair. And by the way, they should call it Liz Fair instead of Lilith Fair. <laughs> yes, they should. Yeah, I thought uh, it was spelled that way actually for a long time with the PH. <laughs> you guys are are pretty much right on. You must have been reading my notes, so now I have nothing to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we we did reference a loose concept earlier, and it's really uh, about the Rolling Stones album "Exile on Main Street." And this is "Exile in Guyville," and kind of the. The story goes that this is a song for song response to that Rolling Stones album. And from what I read, it is, but it's not a lyrical response. It's more of an attitudinal response. So in those songs, it's, you know, the Rolling Stones being the Rolling Stones, going to a city, sleeping with women, being hot shots, you know, and she's living this life in Chicago in the music scene, feeling, uh, it's challenging this male dominated scene where you're kind of the the window dressing as a woman as as opposed to leader and so the song six feet one i think was referencing that where there's a role reversal she's six feet one instead of five feet two she can be the swagger person too you know and there's a lot of that in this album a lot of taking control role reversal clever lyrics, ways to sort of answer to that world. Uh, so I think it, she used the album as more of a template for how to sequence. She didn't know how to take her songs and make them, put them in an order. So using Exile on Main Street, using uh, the attitudes in the songs and then responding with mirroring attitudes or uh, responding attitudes in her songs. So that's how she sequenced it. Guys, I know you're aware of this. Did this factor in at all to your listening experience? I forgot about it. Yeah, I I wasn't thinking about that at all when I was listening. Yeah, it seems like I got way blown out of proportion because I don't think you would even need to know that to appreciate this record. Yeah. All right, so uh, one of the songs refers to uh, dating, the dating scene and the boring dating scene and just men being pretty much gross so let's listen to a little bit <laughs> of soap star joe some of the things i read said that this is referring to people like mick jagger right these preening rock star guys that think they're god's gift to to women and that's really what a lot of it is is pretty much saying fuck you <laughs> <laughs> to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. kind of what Lilith Fair was sort of about, kind of, uh, we're just going to do this by ourselves, peace out sort of situation. But And what's coolest about this album to me is that it wasn't about a movement or it was just an artist being an artist and, and crafting this thing that she probably figured no one would ever hear on this little record label. It was about saying what she wanted to say, painting the pictures that she wanted to paint. And uh, I think that's... That's really awesome. There's something about it's somehow it's not heavy handed, <laughs> you know, I mean, no. it, which is am amazing. And maybe it's just the humor or something that, that softens it. But this, 
you know, it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, an, an extremely angry person, but, uh, no, yeah. it's a, it's a good lo-fi indie rock record that the more you listen to, the more you're like, wait, what did she just say? I mean, she uses the <laughs> C word on this thing. Yeah. She doesn't hold back when it comes to the sexual imagery at all, which I think is good. It's like, it's empowering and it should be put to good use. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like on uh flower, there's a lot of, of sexual imagery, this sort of like, I think it's sort of like uh, approaching a sexual situation from a man's perspective, but spoken from the you know, words of a woman. And so that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, why don't we listen to one of the song that I was most familiar with? I'd never listened to this whole album until fairly recently. The song I was most familiar with was Fucking Run. Sorry for the language, kids. Let's check it out. So uh, that track has been, in my life, spoken of in, in different ways. From my perspective, it's about being sick of this of the one-night stand stuff, meeting someone, you think you've got a connection, you want somebody that actually cares about you at some point, right? And to me, it's, she's done with this crap. She's tired of it. But from the perspective in the 90s, when I'd hear dudes talking about it, it was more like, oh, she really likes to go have sex with strangers. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think oh. so. <laughs> but it just shows you what male minds do with this stuff when the brain is still too soft to like grasp the world around you, you know? Yeah, I think there's that reading of the whole record, potentially, you know, more narrow-minded thinkers but uh yeah this record is literally one that grows on you after a while my initial listens were a little bit lackluster um but man it definitely by the time i got through probably the fourth or fifth time i was like there's a lot here that's pretty interesting <laughs> so yeah i mean even the little like it, especially on headphones there's these little muttery sounds in some of the songs uh sometimes it's the lyrics sometimes it's someone talking with like an answer to what's happening in the song and there's just little details to it, uh, a lot of cool overdubs. And one thing I read was that Brad Wood helped structure the the drum and bass lines around her vocal phrasing and guitar riffs instead of instead of having the rhythm first, which you can kind of tell when you when if you if you think about that. But yeah, so it's clearly just her piece of art, and I think it's an excellent piece of art uh, in terms of its matchup with Exile on Main Street. She matches the swagger of the Rolling Stones, and I think that's really the whole point. You guys have anything to add? I think of the, of the three records we listened to today, I think this one aged the best. Like I've, I really felt like this felt like it stood on its own more than... Like Lucinda Williams' record really sounds like it's of the late 90s. And Chanel Connor, well, that just sort of sounds out of time. As well, it but. sounds like it's from a different planet, yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this one I thought really represented like that cool, just stripped down punk rock sound perfectly. I love it. Yeah, good album. Wow, that's insightful, yes, Don. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Me like you. All right. Don, that was <laughs> Donnie Likey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh oh, it's a new new catch. Yeah, we're stuck with that catchphrase now. I expect that for any album on the show that you enjoy. Oh I need a Donnie Likey. You gotta get a button for that, man. Hashtag Donnie Likey, everybody. All right, so that was Liz Fair with Exile and Guyville, another excellent Lilith Fair performing artist. 
What did we learn today, Lilith Fair fans? <laughs> All right, so Lilith Fair was, I guess the purpose was to show that women could indeed have successful billing throughout ticket sales, as well as have a touring show that just focused on women. You know, from my perspective, it's kind of sad that they needed to have an entire concert you know, tour to, to prove that point. Um, but in that regard, I think it was successful. Because like I was saying earlier, I'd, I feel like it's so synonymous with modern music to have both, you know, both genders represented fairly evenly nowadays that maybe in some part that is thanks to Lilith Fair. So it worked. Yeah, I I love that. So the the three artists we, we covered today, I mean, they're all like attractive uh, in their own way, but none of them are sexual objects you know they weren't marketed for their their sex appeal they never you know as far as i know you know none of them are even though like liz fair i think she almost like kind of jokingly you know puts her nipple on the on the cover you know uh, almost like a reaction against being a, a traditional sex object but yeah and i i think that was kind of the the, the spirit of lilith fair you know they didn't have to be marketed in in that way and you know i mean i think too often uh female artists are presented as kind of a novelty like hey um you know melissa etheridge is the the female bruce springsteen and so and so is the female bob dylan you know it's um no they're just uh, they're just artists you know like everybody else yeah uh for me what i learned was i'm continuing to learn so what i mentioned earlier is opening my mind grapes to other perspectives and lilith fair was a great opportunity for artists that weren't dance hit type MTV stars. I mean, you know, these these were rock and folk artists that didn't really have a big stage. I think a lot of artists got discovered by fans because of these tours, much like Lollapalooza did for alt rock and and underground, you know, college radio. I think uh, Lilith Fair did that for a lot of these women artists, and also a lot of young ladies probably picked up guitars because of it. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, 100%. And that's one to grow on. All right, boys and girls, time to gather around. Going to uh, that old dial-up modem online here and uh, get the old musical wheel of destiny up and spinning. Time to uh, call America online. <laughs> God. CompuServe. <laughs> I'll check my Juno account and see what's going on. <laughs> Send me a little message over AIM here and let's find out what Musical Wheel has in store for us next week. I have chosen 1960s jazz albums. Oh, wow. Right. We are jumping all over the place lately. <laughs> this, this new wheel is really shaking things up. That's going to be fun. That's some, some good stuff in 60s jazz. Oh, my gosh. Don <laughs> is like, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite jazz album from the 60s? Who's your favorite Lilith Fair artist? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll catch you next week. It's going to get jazzy up in here. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you. See you in the funny papers. 
What? <laughs> That's another old neighbor <laughs> line. <laughs>